HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we are just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Chef Jose Andres, who, in addition to being one of America's top chefs and trailblazing humanitarians, is the 2019 recipient of the Julia Child Award. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Jose about the role chefs play in responding to some of the world's biggest challenges, being the Julia Child Award recipient, and we'll hear Jose's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, in our first segment, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. One thing Julia knew is that chefs can be very inspiring figures. I think it would be fair to say she was kind of obsessed with them. In chefs, she saw creativity, passion, and ultimately, generosity. It was no accident that Julia did so many of her television shows featuring chefs who inspired her, whether it was teaming with Jacques Pepin, or highlighting a young Nancy Silverton's dessert alchemy. In episode 13, Daniel Baloud told us he'd actually met Julia many years before she would later officially meet him as an established chef in New York City. In typical Julia fashion, she'd waltzed into the kitchen of the renowned Moulin de Mougin, a French Riviera restaurant where Danielle was a young cook, 
just meet the legendary chef, Roger Verger. The Julia Child Award jury has a pretty monumental task. They are looking for other Julias to shine a light on what they are accomplishing. They have to find someone excelling at being an educator, a great communicator, an innovator, a mentor, as well as a bridge builder, all while doing that with integrity, independence, and public spirit. It's a high bar that Julia set. Someone who is currently leaping over that bar is Chef Jose Andres. His Think Food group operates 30 restaurants, half a dozen cities in three different countries, recently opening Mercado Little Spain in New York City's Hudson Yards. The Michelin Guide's return to California added a second two-star restaurant to their portfolio with Mini Bar by Jose Andres also earning this honor three years running. It all started at Haleo, the Washington, D.C. restaurant that put tapas firmly on the American menu and is still a Washington dining stalwart. However, Jose has taken it all to another level with his leadership, responding to natural disasters through the humanitarian aid organization World Central Kitchen, which he founded in 2012. Perhaps Jose has become better known as the exuberant man in the fishing vest, dashing into the aftermath of hurricanes in Puerto Rico and now the Bahamas. What makes someone so accomplished in the kitchen want to risk it all by leaping into the storm? We're about to find out as we're thrilled to have this year's 2019 Julia Child Award recipient joining us today. Welcome to the podcast, Jose. Thank you for having me. Well, it's a delight. So first off, on a more serious note, what, what's the latest about the relief effort from the Bahamas? Well, Bahamas um, um, is been probably the moment that the men and women of uh, Wall Central Kitchen, we can say that we, we show finally the world that we are here, that they, we are here and we, we are here to do a task that, that we've been preparing for many years, and that we are uh, succeeding, uh, which is providing meals and water to to people uh, in this repair after a major hurricane or natural disaster. So, in, in Bahamas, has been one of our most complicated uh, uh, moments ever, but I think it's been one of the best missions we've ever ever done. Um, we did. Uh, we've done over um, four hundred thousand meals. Uh, I think half a million is just around the corner. We had uh, thousands of uh, volunteers in Bahamas that they signed to join us. We had hundreds of people every single day uh, coming to help us. We had uh, two kitchens, uh, one in Freeport and one in Nassau. We had a distribution center in Marsh Harbor. We already opened the third kitchen in Marsh Harbor uh, after two weeks and a half. We've been distributing in more than nine, ten islands with, uh, uh, with more than 50, 60, 70 food drops every day, six helicopters at the helm of the operation, one boat with a helipad, one amphibious vehicle, two seaplanes, multiple cars, this has been really an operation that we needed to raise above and, 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 and was a very difficult one with so many islands and so much devastation. And, and I'm very proud to see that the men and women, many of them cooks of World Central Kitchen, really we, we, we were able to, 
to, to, to be there next to the people in need of a hot meal, uh, a piece of fruit, a sandwich, or a bottle of water. So it sounds like you're partly saying that all the different lessons you've learned as you've been building World Central Kitchen have kind of paid off in, in, in terms of being able to tackle the, the most difficult problems? Uh, we've done bigger ones, like obviously Puerto Rico, we did uh, 4 million meals. Uh, we we were able to influence the making of many other million meals that we don't take uh, as ours, but we know we influence uh, with our guidance others to do to do more. Uh, obviously, we've been in difficult situations like Indonesia and Mozambique and the volcano in Guatemala and the fires in California, the multiple hurricanes we've been answering in the States and in the Caribbean. Uh, but yes, this one, for a lot of reasons, uh, let me tell you, let me be quite honest. Uh, it's not like it was anybody else. Uh, nobody call us. Nobody tell us be there. Nobody is uh, expecting us to show up. Nobody make us official. But because we have this promise to to the people that when we feel it's something very big, we will show up, and especially in the most difficult circumstances, we will be there next to the, the hungry. Uh, yes, I can say that this one was one of those. Nobody else was there. We show up before many of the very big organizations. I can say that we were there from day one. Even the hurricane was still on the Bahamas, and we already were landing. I was myself landing already with some of my my teammates in uh in Marsh Harbor and and since the moment we start we we only have one mission let's feed as many people as we can as soon as we can and so yes i think we 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 mature i think Bahamas more than anything even Indonesia was an amazing operation and Mozambique was an amazing operation i think Bahamas is the one that everybody uh relies uh, especially the the bigger NGOs Wow, these guys are really serious. These guys are really here. So, so I think World Central Kitchen, we will be around uh, hopefully for the years to come. And and do you think that you will also be on the ground of the Bahamas for a long time, given the the sort of lack of infrastructure and the state of devastation? Well, World Central Kitchen, we're an organization that we like to be the first ones on the ground, and more often than not, we are the last ones on the ground. We like to see how everything develops. We like to see it be changing through the different phases. The people of Bahamas uh, need all the help they can get. And what we are is very creative to adapt to the situations. Uh, the people of Bahamas are going to be needing all the resources. And what we are going to be providing until things are stable in those islands of uh, the northern islands of Abaco and, and Grand Bahamas, is that as people will start moving in and, and until people have kitchens at home, even we need to understand that in Grand, in Abaco, in Great Abaco, the vast majority of homes, they've been totally destroyed uh, until things don't show signs of certain level of, of normalcy. Uh, I can guarantee you that uh, World Central Kitchen will be there next to the people of Bahamas, like we've done in so many other events. Well, like I said, what everything you've done in World Central Kitchen had done is just so inspiring. And given what you just said, what's the best way for people at home who, who don't have your skills or resources to, to help? 
Well, listen, uh, World Central Kitchen, we are an organization that we are supported uh, by the people. We are very grassroots. Uh, people love to follow us. They love to get from all our team members, which we all become kind of uh, reporters to a degree. People love to know what's happening by the day. And we provide that because a lot of people want to know. And, and obviously, we, we have a lot of thousands and thousands of supporters in America and around the world that, you know, they, they support us sometimes just with a dollar. And that's all we need sometimes. Um, so, you know, uh, you go to www.wallcentralkitchen.org, and there is a way that if you want to see in real time what we do, and especially if you care for people in these situations to get food and water immediately and having proof that that's happening in real time, I think World Central Kitchen is that type of organization. And I do believe the future of these type of organizations are going to have to be smaller, more specialized, and where they are able to give you real results in real time about what the dollar you sent that sometimes it's a big sacrifice for a lot of people, but still they do the effort to be part of of a relief operation that you can see that your money is not going into an account that you'll never know what's happening, but it's going into an organization with real men and women on the ground uh, doing the impossible to provide relief. In this case, food and water. That's what we are all about. And I wanted to take a step back and ask you, um, I know a little bit of the history, but I wanted to hear from you personally. What was that aha moment that you had that made you feel like, A, more needed to be done in the face of disasters, and B, that you were the person to, to do it? <laughs> well, you know, cooks like me, we all love to feed the people. Come on. It's, it's who we are. It's in our blood. And you don't need to be a professional cook. I know a lot of people that they feed others uh, because he's in their heart, like my father and my mother. My father was a nurse, my mother too. My mom will be the one more handling the, 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 the week family dinners. And my mom was uh, obviously a working mother. And both work in the same hospital. And my, my father will love to cook for everybody. So many Sundays... Uh, he will gather friends and family members. We will have a place uh, he'll pick, can be in a mountain top or in a camping. Uh, he will bring his big paella pen, and he will he will cook for everybody. And that's a matter. If one day we were twenty, or another day because nobody back in the days nobody had you know e invite or other types of form to control how many people show up. Um, maybe we were 50 or 60, and for my dad, it was always the same. Well, we had a couple more of handfuls of rice, and everybody will eat. So this, I guess, is one of my, my early early um, inspirations. Uh, I was in the military service later on in the Spanish Navy. Uh, it's the first time probably I saw the world in its real form. I went to Africa, to Ivory Coast, to places like Abidjan and Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. And I began seeing real hunger, hunger I never saw in, in, in Spain. Not like we didn't have it, but I didn't see it in the same fashion. 
there is the moment that I was probably 19th and I began seeing that many people didn't have a fraction of the opportunities I had. Um, I read at the time, I remember even early on, John Stenbeck, that probably was one of my first American writers, and I read it in English, one of the first books I read in English. And I think that was the pearl that obviously is the first time in a novel I really saw total inequality. And I think it was later on, obviously, uh, uh, The Grapes of Wrath, that towards the end of, of the novel, the main character, he said something like, whatever there is a fight so hungry people uh, may eat, uh, I will be there. I, we took that phrase to heart and, and we made it our own. And we said, we will be there. So all these stories, you know, um, began planting the seed of me of saying, yes, I'm a cook and I can do more. Obviously, uh, after I finished my military service, arriving to Washington, D.C., uh, uh, the first place um, uh, uh, was the restaurant I opened as a chef when I was 23, Jaleo. Uh, it's still going strong. And, and my apartment was above that restaurant. And across the street on 7th and E is one of the most fascinating places in American history. It's a, it's a building. It's called the, the, the Missing Soldier's Office. And the Missing Soldier's Office is like a red brick building where a woman, a hero, called Clara Barton, single-handed a nurse, began creating the system to take care of the wounded in the American Civil War. That woman, with almost nothing, was able to create one of the most amazing networks in wartime to take care of anybody that was hurt. Thanks to her, the American Red Cross was created. So she was a woman of action. I'm not going to lie to you that uh, 26 years ago, having my apartment across from her, I will not have this kind of uh, dreams of saying, well, if a woman, like almost nothing, was able to take care of so many, why cooks like me, we can go to places that we will have almost nothing and being able to feed not only the few in our fancy restaurants, but the many that sometimes are voiceless and alone in the world and especially under tragedy. That single-handed is, is what began creating in me this need. Then meeting Robert Egger, the founder of DC Central Kitchen, who early on, 25 years ago, told me that charity seems is always about the redemption of the giver when charity should be about the liberation of the receiver. I felt like a plate of food can liberate the receiver if we did it in a smart way. That's what Robert Egger created. He began taking homeless out of the streets, began training them to be cooks, began finding them a place in our communities, graduate them, found them jobs in the restaurant business that we always were in need of good employees, you see, in the process, he was making our communities stronger, one, one person at a time. Those same homeless that became the heart of the city were the ones that were producing more than 10,000 meals a day for the many shelters that we have around Washington. You see, this simple idea, stop throwing money at the problem but invest into solutions, is what began building inside, began being built inside me. And that's how World Central Kitchen was created on the aftermath of the earthquake in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. Um, I said, you know what, I can be here watching 
where I can go there and try to start learning how we can be providing uh, relief. And that's how my whole story with Wall Central Kitchen began uh, already uh, over 10 years ago. Yeah, I, I was going to say that it was, it was, in some ways, Haiti was the door that opened for you and the spark to get you started in, in this feeling. Of, it sounds like you've always had this feeling, but at that moment, you had sort of the the means to put it into action. Is that right? Uh, totally. Uh, I arrived and I was fascinated to see how how aid will be provided. Actually, there um, was a lot of things that in the aftermath during the next one year or two years that you could argue was not perfect in terms of the international community and some of the big NGOs, but that's a conversation for another podcast. <laughs> but I can tell you that the American response was unbelievable. Uh, but at the time, Ambassador uh, Ken Merton uh, was uh, in charge, was one of these great women and men that are part of the State Department. The State Department very much are, are the, best, the best ambassadorship that America can have because it's populated by really unbelievable individuals. And, and Ambassador Ken already was in his third tour in Haiti. He spoke fluent Creole. Uh, he knew everybody in Haiti like like was his country. Um, and because he was there, he only arrived a few months before, uh, when the government very much remember that the main palace uh, where the president lived was totally destroyed. Uh, the entire uh, pro-prince politics and, and people of power very much was was so much destruction that everything halted. And, and American, America was really very big. President Obama, I think, did an amazing job uh, committing a lot of resources to take care of the destruction that happened in Port-au-Prince. Was the American thing to do? Was the right thing to do? And let me tell you, it was very impressive to see. Uh, myself, I used to try to learn. I went to start working and helping feed some of the uh, shelters of some of the refugee, temporary refugee camps. is when I saw Sean Penn, the amazing actor, that to me is one of the best men ever uh, because he showed leadership in a way I never expected a Hollywood actor to show. He was not only throw, showing money, he was there every day, living there in a tent and showing how a refugee camp could be run with, with empathy that could be run, like starting from a new, a brand new, beautiful city. The work that Sean Penn did there, quite frankly, is something like should be given even more light because he was really uh, one of the amazing leaders that show up there. And for me, all of that was learning, learning, doing my part, but learning. Yes, I was doing at times, sometimes thousands uh, of meals a day, but for me, it was learning. Uh, and that's very much what I saw that really gave me the feeling like chefs like me, cooks like me, we can be of so much help in situations like that. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you before we go to the break is whether you kind of see this as being a sea change that what you and World Central Kitchen and its team members are doing is really representative of a, a sea change in what chefs can contribute beyond just uh, just working at a restaurant or um, professional kitchen. Listen, it's been many cases in America and around the world that we know uh, by the press, by the newspapers, by the TV, because we were there, 
that restaurant chefs, food people in the community came out and helped fellow Americans. Uh, on September 11, um, uh, we saw many, many of the most beloved chefs in New York that just came out and began feeding people for free in the streets uh, in the aftermath of, of what happened, of the destruction. Multiple times we've seen the best of humanity coming like that. But when something is very, 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 very major, when the destruction is major, when, when thousands of lives they've been lost, where, where hundreds of thousands of properties they've been lost, when people are totally displaced, when people don't know what they're going to eat or drink, not for a day, but sometimes for weeks at a time, it requires more than goodwill, which is important, but it requires organization. It requires teamwork. And that's very much what we're trying to provide. World Central Kitchen uh, works in a very simple premise, that the food community of the world is endless, that we are all connected, that we all respect each other, and that even if we don't know each other, we know of each other or we know people. So it's World Central Kitchen was to be that connector. So when we show up in Beira, uh, Mozambique, it's people there that somehow already know what World Central Kitchen is. And we become successful because they, the locals, make us successful. And when we show up in Indonesia, the same. And when we show up in Guatemala, the same. You see all of the sudden, that big family that we are, the food family, is part of World Central Kitchen. Even if you don't know it, you are already part of World Central Kitchen. And when people know about what we do, everything is so simple. Because everybody joins, bring the best of what they have, and World Central Kitchen just gives the support to make the locals be be the force that provides much of the meals and, and the structure we need to be successful. And that's why I believe World Central Kitchen was the right idea, to bring the food community of the world, not only chefs, cooks, and managers or writers, but farmers and fishermen and anybody that believes that a plate of food is the beginning of a better tomorrow. Well, I feel it. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back to talk to Jose about this being this year's Julia Child Award recipient. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Welcome back. We're talking to acclaimed chef and humanitarian Jose Andres, the 2019 Julia Child Award recipient, about his path to success. 
So, Jose, much like Julia did for French food, you've become a kind of super advocate for Spanish cuisine. But given that, what made you come to America to start with? Listen, America, I always say that uh, life has a, a path for all of us, and me, I try not to fight. <laughs> uh, um, uh, I was, as I said before, in the Spanish Navy. First time I came to America was in the Spanish Navy. I was in the Navy, not on any boat, but in a boat that I personally chose, and I was lucky enough that I dreamed, and the dream happened and became reality. Uh, I was already a young but talented cook, and when I joined the Navy, uh, they chose me to cook uh, for the Admiral. And I was like, really? I don't want to cook for the Admiral. (laughs) I want to go on a boat. Uh, Obviously, very quickly, everybody knows I'm highly opinionated, and I was (laughs) able to convey that message to the Admiral, Admiral Torres at the time. And... And he told me, okay, let's make a deal here. You should stay with us a few more months. I know you want to go in that special boat. And before the boat sells, um, I'll make sure we transfer you. I say sells because the boat I wanted to go is the training ship for the midshipmen. A majestic, foremast, tall ship, beautiful white uh, boat with 27 cells. And for me, the dream of being able to be on that boat and sail across the oceans, like so many of my uh, nationals have done in the centuries before and dreaming of being a, an adventurer and a, a, a new discoverer, that, that was something that really resonated in me. First place we came in America was Pensacola. And Pensacola, if, you, if people don't know it, celebrates... <laughs> Uh, the five flag celebration. One of them is the Spanish Castilian flag. Obviously, this was the moment that I thought, shit, I belong here, obviously, <laughs> with permission of the Native Americans at the end of the day, and with permission of the Vikings that came in, in the northern parts. Spain was the first country that really came here from Europe and called America home and we build cities that we can say were cities to stay. So it felt very quickly like I was home uh, 500 years later. And I I went to New York, and when I finished my military service, I had very clear that I wanted to come back and be part of what America meant. And then I got this this opportunity. I got uh, E2 visa, and I came to New York to work as a cook. Back in 1990, the end of 1991, early 1992, and I never looked back. Um, Here I came, and and here I am so many years later. Well, and you've been quite outspoken. I mean, I think what you've just described is very much the description of of the American dream through through your own lens. And obviously, you you represent an immigrant success story. But you've also been outspoken amidst the, the current sort of um, I don't know, we call it debate about the value of immigration and the limits of it. And so yeah. w- w- I wanted to ask you what, what you're, to say a little bit more about your perspective about the way this debate has been going and maybe what people should, coming from someone with, with, with your story, and you might be branded, you know, a good immigrant because you've made such strong contributions. But 
what perspective do you really think people need to keep in mind in this debate? Uh, you know, uh, all immigrants are good immigrants. Like, all people are good people. Do we have always some black ships in our communities? Yeah. But, uh, but that happens, and we need to make sure that we work towards isolating them and, and, and making sure that they don't, they don't do any damage to, to our way of life. But the 99-plus percent of the people, they are all good people with hearts. Obviously, I'm not going to tell anybody, uh, besides uh, the beautiful Native Americans that welcome us, <laughs> uh, they like it or not, but at the end, they let us come in. Everybody in America is an immigrant. And if we don't understand that America, if any, in recent memory, is a country of immigrants, well, uh, if anybody forgot, they should go back to the history books. Uh, the big lie we face today is this, especially when we talk about food, that we have more than 11 million undocumented in America, that they've been part of the American way of life for a very long time. They work in our farms, in our fishing boats, in our distribution systems, in our wineries, in our cheese-making facilities, in every single factory that has anything to do with food. Um, this is a reality. Um, and we need to understand that that reality, it's one of a big lie. The lie that we don't want to recognize that America and the American dream will not function without the hard work of those more than 11 million undocumented. And we need to stop that lie. Uh, that lie. And we need to make them part of the American dream once and for all. With that, that doesn't mean that anybody is saying, let's, let, let's make America open and let's, let's allow everybody to come in. No, every country needs to have borders. Every country needs to somehow control the borders and protect their borders. This is without question. But what we are talking, number one, is, yes, let's protect the border. Let's make sure that the border is secure. We can argue about walls or no walls. I don't believe walls are going to solve anything. What really is going to be solved be, uh, that is better than walls is when the other countries that surround America do as well as we're trying to do. If every community in the countries that surround America do well, nobody wants to leave their homes. Nobody wants to leave their countries. Everybody wants to be around their family and around their loved ones. Nobody to, wants to be in a foreign place that they don't know. So let's, because we are the most powerful country in the history of mankind, let's do more to not throw money at the problem that will be building a wall, but let's invest into solutions that will be, let's make sure that we put USAID and soft American diplomacy at work, and let's make sure that we help those countries to do better better democracy, better jobs, better education. So those countries are part of, uh, of the future of our continent, of the future of our planet. At the same time, inside America, we need to make sure that we take care of rural America. And we need to stop that we have politicians that they use immigrants and undocumented as excuse of the things that are wrong in America. It is not true 
that you have Americans without a job because undocumented take their jobs. Undocumented more often than not take jobs that nobody else wants to do. And that's a reality. And let's face it, many immigrants have opened companies and have created millions, if not hundreds of millions of jobs in the last 50 years alone. So let's be pragmatic. Let's make sure that we have a system that works. Let's make sure that businesses have enough visas to bring specialized foreigners that comes legally. Today, our farmers don't have enough visas to legally cover and hire every single worker they need to keep making America one of the richest countries of the world in terms of producing good farming outputs. And because we have a great farmland and we, we, are some of, we are the best producer in the world, but we need good employees. And if we cannot hire them in America, let's make sure that we give enough visas to bring those men and women that will do the work, will go back to their countries like a revolving door visa, and they will go, they will bring riches back to the countries they came from, they will make their communities richer, they'll come back to America again, and they will keep making America richer too. So that's what we need to be thinking. Like immigrants are good people, like you and like me. And like we need to treat them with the respect they deserve. Well, thank you very much. That was, that was uh, I think, covered all the bases very well, in my opinion. So I want to change gears a little bit. And I, I, I know there were a few concerns about this, but I want to reassure you that the Julia Child Award is definitively not a Lifetime Achievement Award. Its exact purpose is to recognize people just like you doing amazing things in the prime of their career and to help spur that along, particularly through the $50,000 grant that comes with the recognition, which you've elected to go quite um, logically to World Central Kitchen. So I wanted to ask you, as, as now you're also the youngest recipient to date, so how does it feel to receive this honor and join this rarefied group of honorees? <laughs> Uh, I've been the youngest recipient. Uh, in, uh, indeed, I, I don't. I don't feel so young anymore. Well, you'll feel like a baby in November. So, <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, uh, it feels very. You know, it feels very humbling. Obviously, uh, the, the the Julia Child name. Um, it's such a powerful name in so many ways. Uh, I then had a lot of opportunities to spend long times with her, but I had few. I remember one time she came to Washington and she came to Cafe Atlantico and, and came with uh, the only and the one, Jack Pepin. And I did uh, the best menu I could. That restaurant was not my Spanish restaurant, but that was a Latin American restaurant, Caribbean restaurant. And, and then I was doing more creative cooking in that place. Uh, my life is full of different stories. Some are the cooking of my mother, Others are more avant-garde, but to me it's all good cooking. I remember going to the table somehow nervous and asking Jack, and Jack was like, that was great. And, and I asked Julia, and she, she answered me with her beautiful, uh, loving, deep uh, voice, like, very interesting, Jose, very interesting. It's very funny because my wife, every time I ask her about something, my wife, Patricia, who I've been with her more than 25 years, when I tell her, um, <laughs> when I, I ask her something and uh, about what she thinks about something and she doesn't want to tell me something bad, she tells me very 
interesting. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> so there is Julia. There is my wife, Patricia, <laughs> using the word interesting to, in a very nice way, to say, it's, it's okay. It's maybe not my favorite meals ever, but but uh, it's okay. This is who Julia was to a degree. Uh, uh, humble in a way, always very, very direct, but also not trying to hurt the feelings of anybody. And and, and for me, uh, that and other interactions I had with her, they were always amazing. And especially in the in the in the distance, watching her role through TV, uh, becoming not only the woman she became for America, but how important she was in making America understand the value of, 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 of cooking, the value of cooking, of family, the value of, of, of setting the table and, and make sure that the meal was part of the, our DNA in ways no, nobody else um, uh, has done it. No? So for me, you know, just to be sharing this 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 kind of uh, a war with people like, imagine Jack Pepin, that to me is, is I'm so proud to call him a, a friend and, and so many more things, Danny Mayer, uh, Rick Bailey's and, and obviously Susan uh, and Mary Sue, uh, Susan Feniger and Mary Sue Milliken. I mean, uh, it, it means a lot. It means a lot. Uh, I'm technically, obviously, even even Rick and Susan and Mary, they do somehow Mexican cooking, uh, uh, Tex-Mex Mexican cooking. Uh, um, um, it's very amazing that here I am, uh, a Hispanic, doing a Spanish food, representing somehow Europe, but more than anything, representing uh, uh, immigrants uh, again in the same way in its day, uh, Jack Pepin did it. No, more than anything today, uh, I take it. No, uh, an award given to me, but an award given to the so many, so many immigrants that have helped uh, make the amazing melting pot of America bigger and stronger, and 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 that we are so thankful that America has given us that opportunity. I understand that being an immigrant doesn't have doesn't come only with rights, uh, but being an immigrant also comes with responsibilities. And I do believe that immigrants like me, we take that responsibility to heart, a responsibility to give back, a responsibility to build bridges between America and the places we come from, to make sure that we bring understanding be between very different people. Because only then, only that, we will have uh, a great country and we will have a great planet where, where we, we all face uh, solidarity with, with each other and that the people of the world, we are no enemies of each other, but we are, we are friends and we work towards the same goal to make sure that this planet Earth keeps moving forward and where everybody can enjoy the goodness of the Earth that this uh, planet uh, provide, uh, provides to all of us. Well, with that, we're going to go to our last break. And after the break, Jose is going to reveal his final Julia moment. And you let us know, are chefs the real-life superheroes of the future? Do you think chefs should be more out, be doing more outside the kitchen? Or is that expecting too much? Send us an email or even a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org to let us know. We'll be right back. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Dana Cowan, and I'm the host of Speaking Broadly here on HRN. Every week, I conduct intimate interviews with the brilliant, powerful women in the food world. We discuss their lives, their careers, and the ways in which they navigate the world at large. You can find Speaking Broadly wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. 
When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. No, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's Immortal Worlds, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. Now, Jose, you always you gave us a bit of a preview of a Julia moment. Do you have a, another one that you wanted to, to formally call your Julia moment and share with us? Well, listen, um, I'm not going to lie to you, but I have very strange ways to, to learn. I never was the guy that learned in the traditional ways. And... And I will always try to learn with things that make me, uh, you know, be be on attention mode for long times because I am a guy that very quickly moves his attention to new things. Uh, so I will learn English, obviously, listening to to a lot of CDs and reading the songs as I was singing them and I was listening to them. But but for me, um, I'm not gonna lie to you that watching. Watching uh, Julia shows uh, was a great way for me to be learning English, and and I'm not gonna lie to you if I tell you that actually, in many ways Julia was one of my English teachers. But I think it forever is this one moment <laughs> that 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 episode on the chicken and that <laughs> that that every every day I'm, I, I sometimes I I have a bad day I think. Just having that image of her almost grabbing the chicken and treating it like it was a little person, uh, <laughs> to me in more ways than one, is it's 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 a moment that only somebody like her can take such a serious moment of uh, as cooking is a serious moment, but make it into such a joy uh, and such a moment of of happiness for so many. You know? So so uh, there are others, but those those two are probably the, the ones I could be telling you. Me uh, and Julie, almost like me and my private English teacher, only by listening. Well, and it didn't affect your accent that much. You you still have you you did not end up with a Boston Brahmin way of speaking. speaking uh, thanks God. The only <laughs> last thing I will need is on top of my accent, used to 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 add the 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 the, the Julia Child pitch. And the Julia <laughs> accent and the Northern accent uh, is very funny because every time somebody always tells me, well, Jose, you have a thick accent. I don't really understand it. And I go and I always tell them, man, it's exactly what I'm thinking about you. <laughs> well, either you're uh, going to say in your head, you, you think you sound like Julia Child in your head when you're speaking English. <laughs> no, but, uh, but it, it's kind of uh, funny in this way. I, uh, even in Spanish, everybody always tells me that they have a fairly, in Spanish, obviously, a fairly neutral accent. Uh-huh. Um, in English, in English, I will say that my accent is in development. Ah, uh, well, as Jacques Pepin says, he has a Connecticut accent. <laughs> well, uh, is that a, is Jacques Pepin? I hope he's not listening. Is that a Connecticut accent? <laughs> well, that's what Jacques. Wow. That's what Jacques saying. So you must have a Washington D.C. accent by now. So. Uh, well, I tell everybody, yes, I'm a Washingtonian with an accent. Exactly, like and, all Washingtonians. Uh, <laughs> and then, actually, I will also tell you that we will get to you. I believe you can now get Julia flapping the wings of, it may actually be a turkey, um, as a GIF. So you can put that out on your Twitter feed as often as you like to uh, reward people. Yeah, the turkey. Yeah. 
Well, thank you, Jose, for joining us with all your gracious wisdom and generosity. We so appreciate you making the time in your incredibly busy schedule. Thank you very much for having me, and and thank you very much for for this award. And 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 you know, I hope um, I'll be able to to live uh, to to its meaning every day of my life. Uh, so again, um, thank you, and and and. On behalf of everybody that that is around my life, that makes my life possible, uh, uh, thank you. Well, we can't wait to see where that goes and carries on. So for for everyone, thanks for listening. And for the latest news about the Julia Child Award and information about the gala presentation to Chef Jose Andres, follow us on social media, search at Julia Child on Facebook, or at Julia Child Foundation, all one word on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF, and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. Or go to juliachildaward.com for more details. Tickets to the gala head this, held at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History right in Flag Hall are available to the public, but they're going fast. And to be inspired and continue to be inspired in real time by all that Chef Jose Andres is doing, follow him on Twitter. He's at Chef Jose Andres. And World Central Kitchen's handle is at WC Kitchen. And you can learn more, as Jose said before, at wck.org. And if you want to dine at one of Jose's terrific establishments, start your tour on thinkfoodgroup.com and click on restaurants. Jose has even authored a new book in his free time, Vegetables Unleashed with Matt Golding. It's a guide to extracting the most deliciousness from your veg, published in 2019 by HarperCollins Echo and Anthony Bourdain Imprints. Ask for it at your favorite book-selling source. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH, also the creators of that GIF. Thanks to my co-producer of the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. The theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. Please give us a review. It really helps new listeners discover the show. If you can do it on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, all the better. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after, wherever you find your podcast. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the AHRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>